welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. This is What on Earth, the podcast that asks the question, what on earth is going on as Australia and the world transitions to the post-carbon world as we in business in Australia move towards net zero? We look at what's going on under the earth, above the earth and around the world. My name is James Scotland. I'm the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode are my learned colleagues, firstly, Paul Hodson, the Principal Advisor of Paul Hodson Advisory, a CEO, a Company Director, and a well-respected industry commentator with a special focus on innovation and change. It's good to have you with us, Paul. How are you? Very well, thanks, James, and good to be, uh, good to be back. Yeah, it's always great to have you. I know you're crazy busy uh, in the transition. And with us also, of course, is our third amigo, the Tenant Reed, the Head of Energy and Environment for Australian Industry Group, a man who has spent uh, decades, I think, <laughs> probably not that much in this area, and is one of Australia's top 100 influencers in this area. Hello, Tenant. How are you? Uh, I am lucky to be alive, such is the pace of uh, climate and energy stuff happening lately. Uh, it is crazy out there, so uh, let's let's keep on keeping on. Let's try and survive it. Yes, it's a great time to be in it, but it is a crazy time to be in it as well. Actually, that raises the the point that I wanted to discuss today, which uh, is based on an analogy that that Paul mentioned in the last episode. He said, uh, if I quote you correctly, Paul, that it. If you're going to lose weight, it's better if you've got 20 months to lose 10 kilos rather than just six weeks. If you have to do it in six weeks, you have to go through a lot more pain than when you've got more time. And that's the analogy of where we're at with the transition. Uh, many people are starting to say that we're already at the one minute to midnight type of uh, scenario and we need to move quickly. And the question I want to raise today is, is Australia ready for a rapid transition for the pain, for the opportunities and all the things that's going to be involved? as we transition. A good place to start with that is the recent announcement by the Queensland government that they are rapidly increasing their targets of reducing carbon. This is interesting. It's a state that based on LNG and coal for many years, and now they're talking about increasing uh, their targets in the uh, net zero or reduced, reduced carbon area. Do you want to talk to it for a minute, Paul, as an economic development expert, and, and tell us what your first thoughts were when you, when you heard the announcement? Uh, thanks, thanks, James. And look, I mean, I I, I really applaud the uh, the increased ambition, and I think we're seeing the increased ambition right across the board at the moment. Um, and I I have real sympathy for anyone. I mean, this is really a ten year plan, and, and potentially a little bit beyond that. Um, uh, predicting out what's going to happen in six months or one year at the moment is pretty pretty fraught as well. So for anyone looking to invest um, in the infrastructure that's required. Um, it is a it's a really tough game, but I, I really applaud the the ambition. I think a couple of key things, uh, you know, increased transmission infrastructure is going to be really critical, um, and that uh, there's plenty of that in there, and also the uh, the, the, the storage uh, side of things, which uh, we know is critical as well with the intermittency of renewables. Uh, we're going to be increasing the uh, uh, the amount of storage required. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting looking back, probably only a year or so ago, there was. Uh, uh, a sense that you know no, there was going to be no no early closure of coal-fired power stations in Queensland, 
Uh, and now we've got uh, a plan which really looks at about 2035. We're not going to have any more need for coal-fired power in, in Queensland. It's quite breathtaking, the speed of, of change, I guess, in, in that. Um, a couple of things I think are, are, uh, are challenging. This is going to be a work in progress. Uh, there's still a lot of things that need to be worked out. Um, I would almost think that a plan like that would need a, an annual update. Um, uh, the, the sort of things I think about are this is really about decarbonising our national electricity market as it currently stands. Um, I think uh, uh, the, the influx of electric vehicles which are going to come over the next few years increase uh, electrification potentially in things like domestic uh, cooking and heating in the industrial sector um, need to be factored in, plus the exports and how we decarbonise exports and then things like mobility. So how do we replace um, things like diesel, for example? Um, and how do we replace uh, uh, fossil fuels in things like uh, the chemical industry as well? Uh, are all going to have demands on the electricity sector um, and the energy sector more broadly in decarbonisation. And um, some of those things perhaps aren't factored in as much as you would like. There's probably not as much detail about that uh, and those demands over the next 10 years um, within the plan. And the other one, I think, is we can increase our ambition. And it's great to see the ambition being increased, but the delivery becomes actually even more fraught. So the amount of kit that we're going to require, the battery packs, the electrolyzers, the fuel cells, the wind towers, the solar panels, the transmission infrastructure, um, the workforce that's going to be required to do that, uh, the amount of critical minerals that go into all of that. Um, and the rest of the world is doing all this as well. So what's our domestic capability in manufacturing and services and in skills that can deliver on that? Um, and increasing targets, increasing ambitions, great, uh, but it, it actually does really then focus the intention, the attention on can we deliver? And I think the can we deliver and how we deliver is, is becoming the really, uh, the focal point now of, uh, of Australia's decarbonisation journey. Uh, the ambition, I think, is, is quite clear now. I think there's, there's almost a, a consensus around that, but it's actually how do we build up our domestic capability to be able to achieve it? It sounds like um, we, we agree on the ambition. There is some, there's some details still to come in the, in the plan. Uh, and uh, can we actually do it? You know, have we got the resources to do it? Have you got a sense as to why it's happened now, Paul? Um, is it because they heard your comment about losing weight over, over 24 months? Or is there some other driver? Look, I think there's multiple drivers. Um, and, you know, uh, like like uh, the the old uh, the old Chinese proverb, the best place best time to uh, plant a tree was twenty years ago. The second the second best time is is today. Um, I think uh, there is a, a growing sense that uh, we 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 need to get on with it, and so people are making big decisions. Um, we're seeing daily decisions, uh, hourly decisions uh, that are ramping up ambition, not just domestically but globally. Um, and, uh, and we are in, we're in a race. We're in a race against time now. Um, and we're going to really have to pull together to, to achieve what we need to. But the, the ramp up is extraordinary. Um, and I think, uh, in a lot of the conversations I have with people, just getting people to understand the scale of what we're trying to do and the pace of what we're trying to do, uh, which is really unprecedented in, in industrial activity, um, uh, probably globally. So, uh, so it does, it does require some commitment, some creativity, uh, lots and lots of investment and, uh, and just a, 
some courage as well, probably, to really make make it happen. There's some um, some big questions for business people there in that in the whole thing, isn't it? What opportunities are there for us? And also, what does it mean for my business if I have to move faster than I expected? Um, before I ask Tenant for his initial thoughts and when he heard the the announcement, apart from just going into meltdown because there are so many announcements, <laughs> there's a great Turkish saying, a great story about a man travelling through Turkey and he stopped a, an old Turkish man and said, how do I get to Rome from here? Uh, and the man said, well, you wouldn't start here. <laughs> this is a dumb place to start, but you are where you are, so let's talk about that. Tenant, what was your thoughts when you heard uh, quite, a, quite a big announcement from Queensland Premier? Yeah, so this was both very surprising and not surprising at all. Very surprising because it's less than 18 months since the Queensland government forced out the head of uh, one of its uh, state-owned electricity generation companies for foreshadowing basically that this was the direction they would need to go in. So it's gone from a sackable offence to uh, talk about the uh, earlier-than-expected closure of coal-fired power stations in Queensland to uh, not just government policy but something that the Premier wants to be the face of. Uh, Now, of course, they're talking about a much more positive version of the future of the facilities that today are coal-fired power stations than just um, turning off the lights and walking away they're talking about repurposing those sites as uh, providers of system security services through um, synchronous condensers uh, as hubs for uh, a whole range of new energy activities. But to go to uh, an official Queensland government position of they essentially won't be dependent regularly on uh, coal-fired electricity in 13 years' time is pretty remarkable. On the other hand, the Integrated System Plan uh, 2022 edition expected uh, this, uh, this change essentially to happen. This, this is slightly faster than uh, what was in the Integrated System Plan, uh, but uh, all coal uh, was seen by a, a range of, uh, of experts and stakeholders and uh, energy governance bodies themselves to be out of the NEM much faster than the official dates even before this announcement. Uh, so it's, Queensland is catching up with uh, where everybody else's heads have been, but also they're putting in pretty critical detail of their own, the specific projects for storage and transmission that they're talking about uh, were not incorporated into the um, integrated system plan. Uh, I think there is some scope for for those projects to evolve and, and change. There wasn't a lot of discussion in this plan about interconnection with the other states and sharing energy resources with the other states. Uh, other than in the fine print of the, um, the the more detailed attachment to this plan, there was some recognition that, well, those possibilities do exist and if they do more interconnection with New South Wales and depending on what resources New South Wales has available, uh, so th- they may be able to do without some of the, um, the storage and, uh, and other assets inside Queensland that they're foreshadowing. 
now. So, of course, that every state government wants to talk up stuff happening within its state. Um, it's going to be pretty important for the, uh, the different regions of the market to actually cooperate uh, because their, their individual costs can be significantly cut by sharing resources rather than trying to have a, an autarkic energy system inside each state, which it, it's, a, it's a political temptation to talk about autarky, but people will regret the bills down the track. Maybe, maybe it's the opposite uh, of the, that Chinese uh, proverb. Um, you, uh, you, you won't want to harvest the fruits of the tree 20 years later if those fruits are big bills. We've all quoted um, proverbs or stories now, so that's a good start. Uh, <laughs> this is saying- becoming a, an argument by parable podcast. <laughs> Um, I'm just opening Google now to get some more. Uh, 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 to put it in small words, are we saying that the, the Queensland announcement was essentially saying they're moving out of coal-fired electricity? Is that basically the whole, the whole plan? I think that's the single biggest um, change of stance and, and outlook and objective in the plan. And then there's all, a hell of a lot of other content but it is all about making that stance work. So um, the, if you are moving away from coal-fired power, then you need a lot of renew- large-scale renewable generation. You need a lot of energy storage. You need a lot of transmission. Uh, you need a lot of demand-side smarts to uh, help to, to manage the uh, swings of supply in a, a heavily renewable grid so uh, I, I think the the whole thing is a lot more than um, we're, we're getting out of coal but that that move out of coal is the the big driver of everything else I would say there's one thing that they're not really explicitly grappling with yet uh, which is all the emissions from outside the electricity system. Uh, from the the resources development that has been such a big part of the economic growth in Queensland in recent decades, and um, the the growth of coal production, the growth of for export, the growth of gas production for export, mm. uh, they're they're still more or less waiting to see what international market demand uh, does to that industry and live with the results of it rather than themselves seeking uh, any kind of proactive role in that. And as a result, the state's emissions, like the, the Queensland's emissions have risen a lot in the last couple of decades, largely because of um, these, these export industries. So even moving to 80% plus renewables um, for Queensland's own energy use won't turn that very far around. So if I'm a supplier to the traditional industries, Paul, I shouldn't be too worried. There is still uh, still work for me ahead. Um, And as a business person, how should I view this this announcement? Is this one of excitement and opportunities or is this, you know, my business about to take a hit as we transition to the new world? Look, I think 
I think uh, despite the, the the surge of new announcements and things, I think there's going to be uh, the delivery is going to be less uh, less uh, spiky. It's going to be much more. Um, you know, it's, it's it's going to ramp up, but it's going to have to be because that's going to be the pragmatic way of doing it. Um, but I think with any any bit, if in you know, in any for any business person, uh, you know, it having regular discussions with your customers, not just about transactions, but actually about the state of the industry and where things are going and where their markets are going and what insights they're hearing and what their plans are doing as well, I think is always critical. And then trying to really understand your customers' customers as well. Um, you know, uh, the analogy is uh, driving down the road. You're not just looking at the uh, at the number plate of the car in front of you. You're looking a couple of cars ahead, right? Because uh, if they're going to put their brakes on, you want to you want to be you want to be reacting uh, to 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 something happening further down the street than immediately in front of you. So, uh, so I think I think you know, really just observing, understanding, thinking about what the opportunities are. There's huge opportunities. I mean, the opportunities are enormous. Um, and they're probably going to be difficult for individual businesses on their own. So actually looking at, uh, at collaborating, uh, looking at increasing their capacity and sharing the risk by, by working with others, for example, um, you know, working through your industry association and others to, to, to create clusters and, uh, and other things is going to be really important, I think, for, for people to understand that. But, but the, you know, the, the certainty is, is that we're on a journey now. Uh, we're on a path that's, that's leading to this. Um, and I think that uncertainty has probably disappeared, which is good, which gives some confidence to people. Um, but the pace of it and how it's going to look, um, I think is still quite, uh, quite fraught. I think um, I, I think you're hundred percent right there. It's a, a, as a business person, we can say at least we now know that this is happening. I just have to figure out how it works for me. Um, let's move. Let's move on. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. I'm sure we'll come back and talk about about. Uh, actually, before we move on, I noticed that in um, New York, in America, uh, New York State has said uh, that they will get to a hundred percent non. Fuel non non polluting cars by twenty thirty five. That follows California and fifteen other <laughs> out of is there fifty states in America? I should know that. Um, it is fifty. Fifty, yeah, I thought it was um, for now. So Queensland, Queensland making these announcements is it, and in Washington uh, and sorry, New York State and California. Why is this state based rather than in national and international? I know we've talked about this before, but just a quick update on on. Why is it so important for the states to be driving this? Or why are they driving this? Well, in both Australia and in the United States, there have been long stretches where the national government uh, had uh, a very different stance on climate change and energy transition to some of the state governments. And state governments have, have pursued their own path and like in a different way that is still happening in the united states the biden administration is very keen on climate action and we're seeing some of the conservatively governed uh, states in the u.s push back in the opposite direction so uh, i believe that uh, texas and florida are trying to make life harder for investment banks and other financial institutions uh, if they are not investing in oil and gas. Um, but any time that you've got multiple 
um, levels of government, you have the potential for them to have different priorities work in different directions. And they do have uh, also uh, different powers and uh, issues that they, they can influence. So in the United States, there is some legal scope for states to set their own uh, vehicle efficiency standards. In Australia, um, the, the states have got legal advice that they can't get into that space. It needs to be something that the federal government leads. But they do have greater ability to intervene in electricity markets, um, and, and they have been. So I, I think, uh, you know, business usually likes to see greater alignment and consistency between the levels of government that it has to deal with. Um, would rather one regulatory regime, one set of rules that's well understood rather than, you know, six different referees running around um, blowing their whistles at different times for different reasons. Um, but uh, when you've got um, a, a, a national scene that, that isn't moving, as has been the case at times, then um, a, a, a messy Progress uh, looks better than uh, uniform stasis. Hmm. You know, we need to remember that it's the Commonwealth of Australia, it's the United States, it's the United Kingdom, it's the European Union. Um, those words don't always accurately describe what's going on. I'm not sure united is always a good word. Paul, did you have a comment before we move on? No, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, states have uh, enormous powers, right? I mean, they are fed, uh, you know, it's the United States, it's a federation of states. Those states operate quite independently as well. And the same in Australia, we're a, we're a federation. Um, so states have that and, uh, and it's much easier to act alone than it is to potentially uh, have a consensus across a, a wider group of people with, with various different uh, viewpoints, assets and the like. And you look at places like the US, California, if it was a nation in its own right, would be the world's fifth largest economy. It would be uh, more than twice the size of the Australian uh, economy in terms of GDP. So, um, you know, plenty for them to get on with, right, without waiting potentially for a consensus across 50 states. Yeah, yeah. Really One more feature of that is just the, the, the difficulty of getting things done at different levels of government, as, as Paul was saying. In the United States, at the federal level, there are so many veto points and uh, the, um, the Congress has been so uh, finely divided that uh, it is very difficult to get anything done. Um, just basic legislation on, on any topic is unlikely to pass. Uh, the fact that there have been some major bills passed out of the, the Congress in the last uh, two years is, is quite remarkable. The scope of those is substantial. But it, more things coming up that, that need doing, uh, there's arguments at the moment about permitting reform to enable more transmission lines to get built uh, in order to, to facilitate this growth of renewables um, and efforts to, to get that done, which sounds like something that should be able to be bipartisan, good for clean energy, so Democrats should like it, getting government off the backs of, of, of business, so uh, Republicans should like it. Uh, but the polarisation is so intense that um, the, the Republicans were whipping against uh, a, a proposal uh, for that permanent reform. 
platform just to stick it to the Libs. And uh, the Democrats weren't united because that proposal would not just uh, enable transmission for clean energy, but make it easier to build gas pipelines too. Um, so in that environment, when states can get themselves together to do something, uh, they, they often will become the locus of action. California has a super majority of Democrats that can agree amongst themselves to get stuff done. Um, there's super majorities in quite a few states for one side or another. In Australia, it is much easier to get things done at the federal level than in the US. And we have a, um, an alignment at the moment in the federal parliament where quite a lot of things are possible on, um, on energy and climate. Uh, at the, the state level, it, it can be easier too. So we're a different country to the US in all sorts of ways. Um, but we, we do have some similar dynamics around the ways that, um, that federation plays out. We're seeing um, uh, around the world this challenge between um, business and government. Uh, in Canada, they're, in, they're doing a lot of investment in LNG because there's a demand for LNG straight away. Uh, and the government is tending to say, well, hang on, you know, this is not sustainable. And investors and, and people in the street are saying that's not such a good investment. But corporations are saying the money's there. You know, we've got this energy crisis. So it's this energy crisis now versus sustainable future. Um, the argument, I guess, is that governments need to lead here, um, but that would be against many political views of saying, no, no, just get out of the way and let business do itself. Am I, am I wandering into complex areas here? Does anyone want to, <laughs> want to just discuss you know, how political philosophy and the. Get, the yeah, yeah, no, something too heavy. How do we get through the transition pain, I guess, is the overall question. Maybe we'll come back to it. You've been doing a lot of stuff, uh, Tenant. Uh, there's a lot going on at the federal level, is that right? Maybe we'll just walk away from what I just said and, <laughs> and concentrate on what's actually happening. Well, I think the, 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 the philosophy of, like, how do you govern, uh, how do you uh, achieve the, the, the best outcomes for, for everybody will keep coming up in, in everything that we talk about. But there is a lot happening at the federal level in Australia. Uh, we have uh, the federal government designing its safeguard mechanism or its version of the previous government's safeguard mechanism at the moment to constrain industrial emissions and, and bring them down consistent with net zero over time. That's a huge reform. Uh, the, the, what we're talking about here is um, a system that uh, sets emissions baselines for facilities equal to about 28% of Australia's national emissions, uh, coal mines, uh, LNG facilities, steel mills, alumina refineries. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of, of big facilities caught up in this. And uh, the arguments that are raging are about how to uh, bring those baseline allowable levels of emissions down over time so that the sectors involved are contributing to not only the 43% by 2030 national emissions reduction goal, but, but net zero by 2050. But also... How are you treating all facilities fairly compared to other facilities? Uh, everybody's got an argument about why their own circumstances are unique and difficult. Uh, and the, the concern about 
loss of trade competitiveness for some of these uh, industries is is rearing its head too. So this is going to be a big one. The government wants it to be sounds, in place in July. It sounds incredibly complex. Um, how do how do we you know get ahead around that? What, what what's important for us in terms of our businesses? So. The single most important choice in the whole thing is does this safeguard mechanism have to amount to an absolute emissions outcome or not? And it's very hard to argue that it shouldn't achieve an absolute emissions goal overall. It's very hard to argue that there there shouldn't be uh, a constraint and a reduction in these emissions over time. And, And most of the Industries involved have committed to net zero, to their part in net zero. Um, But once you accept that, then all these other design decisions about, well, do you have absolute or or emissions intensity baselines? Do you do facility-specific or industry average? How do you treat new facilities versus existing facilities? All of them become these horrible zero-sum fights between different groups of facilities about who has an easier time and who has a harder time. And really, all, everybody's time has to get harder um, as, as the thing goes on, if it's going to amount to something. The other thing that's really important is how do we deal with trade exposure? Um, so the classic fear here is that, well, if, if we subject our industry to a carbon constraint or a carbon cost that's tighter than what their competitors overseas face, then they're going to lose competitiveness, they're going to go out the back door, production will increase overseas, we'll lose jobs, emissions won't be lower globally. Now, that fear has changed a lot over the years, like the context for it has shifted a lot. Global action is, uh, is much wider and deeper than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, the, the safeguard mechanism itself is very different in its design to like the old carbon pricing mechanism, but the fear hasn't gone away. And it's not just here that it hasn't gone away. European Union is, com- is concerned about trade competitiveness. The US is, uh, South Korea, China, all of them in different ways are designing their policies so that they don't lose industries that have a future in a net zero world. And we need to have that concern as well but then like how do you achieve that and ai group has come to the conclusion that a better option than some of the things that the government is thinking about is to consider and develop you know designs for an australian version of a carbon border adjustment mechanism um i've i've banged on about cbams before uh and i'm sure i will again but uh, this is potentially a much better way to have a level playing field for producers of steel, cement, aluminium, basic chemicals, a whole bunch of products that we're going to need, but we're also going to need to change the way they're made um, to ensure that industry is able to make those transformational investments without worrying that they're just going to be rendered completely uncompetitive in the process. One of the things that uh, makes my, my days exciting and interesting is when I'm talking to uh, SMEs about their changing in supply chains, there's, you know, 
start raising some issues and people who are, you know, are good people all of a sudden think of something and say, but what about this? <laughs> and we say, you know, there's many, 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 many people looking at this over many, many years. It's not just because you thought of it just then doesn't mean it hasn't been thought of. And I think that's what you're talking about. There is a lot of discussion going on trying to figure out how we work through these issues. Paul, you work in the new, the new, the renewable energy, the new energy sector, and you, you've been bouncing around the world lately. Have you got comments on what, what a tenant's talking about? Are, are we likely to remain competitive? Uh, are we in a good position? Have you got thoughts on the CBAN? Um, look, yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting one, and I, I, I'd really love, I'd love to ask James, uh, uh, tenant a question here, actually, really, in the lead-up to COP27. Um, like a lot has changed in the last year. Um, mm. So the ambition is now, I think, greater. I think there's probably a greater consensus of, of action on climate change. If we go back just even a year ago in Australia, I mean, our two biggest cities were in COVID lockdown. Uh, we were having arguments about whether, whether Australia would do net zero by 2050 um, and divisions within the coalition government about that. Um, uh, and you know, and we we fast forward a year and we look at the geopolitical instability, we look at the energy crisis uh, that's happening globally, we're looking at uh, the Ukraine, uh, the, the war in Ukraine uh, with Russia, uh, you look at a whole range of things happening, perhaps heightened tensions in the, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, um, uh, you're, you're looking at a whole range of things that are happening and I, and that trade competitiveness and the the how do we marry up with at COP27 the ambition and the targets for it now with a, a consensus on action and potentially uh, reducing that 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 trade exposure competition challenge? Is there is there anything that's likely to be different with COP27 this year? Um, uh, perhaps less arguments on the on the why and and more on the how. I think COP27 is going to be actually quite a difficult meeting, uh, not, not for Australia in particular, for the, the, the whole um, edifice of climate diplomacy, I think is going to have a rough time this year. And the reasons are everything that you've, you've been talking about, Paul, um, there are a whole bunch of global cleavages that are in a, a, a really difficult state at the moment. So. Uh, the confrontation between uh, Russia and some semi-allies of Russia with uh, Ukraine and the West is a is a huge challenge. That has that that uh, Russia Ukraine tensions have been a, a were, were difficult in these negotiations actually even before the war. But then you've also got the tensions between the US and China, and that relationship is has been incredibly important for progress or lack of progress uh, on climate in uh, past negotiations. You also have uh, a lot of, of anger and uh, unmet expectations from the developing world towards de uh, developed countries over their commitments in the past that they haven't met and uh, that they still haven't finalised for their next wave of commitments around finance and assistance to the developing world to adapt to uh, climate change, to invest in mitigation and to, to deal with loss and damage. So we're seeing 
really uh, more and more stark impacts on all sorts of countries, but hardest to deal with for the poorest countries from climate change, extreme weather, uh, from uh, exceptionally severe uh, fires and flooding. Uh, we've uh, seen uh, mega storms uh, in the Caribbean uh, recently. Uh, and so there's a, there's a call for uh, developing countries to be assisted by developed countries. We're going to see a lot of fights over that and, and money. But there are also cleavages among developing and emerging economies. So at the G20 meeting in Indonesia earlier this year, uh, that meeting couldn't reach a communique element on climate and energy at all, both because of all those other tensions I mentioned and also because uh, China and India were um, talking down the importance of the 1.5 degrees climate guardrail uh, in favour of uh, an easier to achieve, still very challenging, but easier to achieve two degree guardrail because they, they were arguing, well, it's, it's, um, it's just more practical to talk about two degrees. Now, you get a totally different view on that from the small island developing states, the least developed countries, and, and a lot of the others who weren't present at the G20 but will be among the 190 parties plus that you need consensus from at uh, a UN conference of the parties to get agreement on this. So COP27 is not a, a milestone COP where big um, final agreements are, are there to be struck in the way that Glasgow was or uh, Paris was, but it's a working COP and the, like, the work is going to be hard to do amidst um, all of these cleavages. So Australia's going to come to this. We do have a lot more domestic alignment and, and forward movement uh, today than we did a year ago. Um, we, we might get a round of applause or two for, you know, most improved awards or something like that, um, particularly since most other countries did the raising of their ambition a year earlier. So we may be one of the few that has really ramped up what they're committing to since Glasgow. Uh, we, we will be so far behind that we look like we're, we're in front. Um, but uh, beyond our narrow story, I think it is going to be quite difficult. And so, Paul, you were asking, what does this mean for the trade exposure and competitiveness issues? They're going to be difficult too. We saw last year the start of, um, of countries raising concerns about Europe's carbon border adjustment in this process, uh, concern about unilateral measures, and Europe's probably going to have signed off on the final design for their CBAM uh, by um, the time that, that COP uh, convenes in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and I, I'm sure that is going to come up more and more. You know, if, if everybody would just... Um, just read AI Group's report on carbon border adjustments, I think they'd get a lot calmer about them. But in the absence of that, um, most people believe that a carbon border adjustment harms the country that gets adjusted, uh, harms uh, the exporters to places like Europe. 
uh, and and boosts domestic producers in places like Europe. That's not really how they play out, but it's certainly how people intuitively think they play out. And so I think that's going to increase tensions in the short term rather than alleviating them. For those who are new to uh, this podcast, uh, COP is the Conference of Parties, which is uh, generally called in the press uh, the climate change meeting, the global, chi- global climate change meeting that happens every year. Last time was in Glasgow, this one's in Egypt. Uh, and Australia will have an interesting time ahead, it seems. Um, to, I hope you get a blazer for being the most improved or something. Yes, a, a, maybe a little trophy. A little fez, perhaps, thing is, is that, is that sort of right? Um, after the break, let's come back and uh, talk about some more specific issues to do with the transition. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. In um, in recent times, we've seen some interesting things happen um, We'll just spend you know, a bit of time talking about the global issues, but I've seen some interesting things happen. I've been pulling on this. Um, we're seeing more and more talk of hydrogen being used you know, for mobility purposes in planes, in ships, and even in cars. More and more of the car manufacturers are, are dabbling with the idea of, of hydrogen. Have you got any idea as to why that's the case? Uh, why... It, you know, for a while we thought it was quite settled. It was going to be electric vehicles. EVs were going to be all the rage. But there seems um, a little bit of interest in, in, in hydrogen. Has it been a change in technology or the price? Or what's going on? Um, look, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult one and it's, quite, it's not going to be settled for a while, I suspect, um, because there's, uh, um, there, there's, there's a few different things at play here. One is the technology. So, for example... Uh, batteries are still uh, uh, potentially coming down in uh, the, the sort of cost curve, um, but also the critical minerals that go into batteries are are also the, the the supply chains are tightening, and we're seeing kind of global inflation as well. So the costs of of uh, some of the technologies we're talking about are not coming down as much as people were hoping they would. Um, the batteries are uh, you know going to be great. Particularly where you've got direct electrification, you've got huge amounts of renewables, and you've got grid technology that you can actually, um, uh, you know, fill up if you like the, um, uh, the 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 battery electric vehicles um, and 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 recharge them uh, regularly as needed. Um, that's going to be really uh, important. I think in Australia we're going to have quite a lot of battery electric, uh, certainly in the passenger vehicles, but also in in vans and in in other uh, perhaps lighter lighter load and back to base and small trip kind of works and particularly where there's grid technology. I think when you get out into longer distances um, and heavier loads, uh, there is potentially going to need to be some sort of fuel uh, that's go- as a liquid or a gas that's going to be uh, be used. Uh, uh, green hydrogen comes into that because it's, it's effectively a carrier of the green electrons, uh, splitting water uh, with green electricity uh, to create that, that fuel. Um, 
But I think in other places, there's going to be a challenge of meeting, uh, of having direct electrification. Countries that are going to be importing a green ammonia or a green hydrogen, um, it might make a lot of sense for them to actually put in hydrogen refueling networks rather than converting that hydrogen uh, back to uh, back to electricity and then charging up vehicles. Um, and it might depend. So it's going to there's going to be you know I think they're both going to coexist. Um, and certainly in things like long distance aviation and shipping, um, it's unlikely we're going to see batteries are going to be powering those, uh, those kind of uh, uh, movements. Um, there are a lot of things that can be done in energy efficiency, uh, uh, new engines, for example, and we're seeing some of that happening. Uh, we're seeing a bit happening in the sort of synthetic fuel space, the power to liquids. Um, even in the, the the sustainable aviation fuels and biofuels, but even when we're looking at refining biofuels, we'll still be requiring a green hydrogen uh, in the refining process. Um, so there's a lot of people looking at lots of different uh, uh, fuel sources for for mobility, um, and I think a, a key part of that is going to be there's going to be a mix. Uh, we don't quite know what's going to be required, but we also need to think about what we can do at scale. Um, and some things, you know, if we're filling up one plane or we're filling up one truck or one bus or, or one ship, uh, yes, we can do it potentially with a waste oil or we can do it with a biofuel or we can do it, we can do a blend. But if we're looking at full decarbonisation, um, we need to be really clear about what we're going to need at scale and what we need at scale often won't be uh, easy to do from, uh, for example, a biodiesel in an existing uh, engine. Uh, uh, there may not be anywhere near the amount of biodiesel that's going to be able to decarbonize a fleet. So what we're finding now is a lot of the big uh, logistics companies are seriously thinking about how do they decarbonize fully um, and start putting in the plans to do that now. So, um, so it's, it's not an easy answer, James, like any of this, um, but it makes sense for a lot of people to be looking at different things. And there are people, I mean, Porsche is looking at... Uh, uh, improving uh, the efficiency of uh, direct combustion of hydrogen um, in in vehicles as well. So rather than fuel cells looking at combustion, it's a very inefficient process at the moment. Um, but I think there's something like 11 billion internal combustion engines in the world. Um, uh, you know, it, it probably would make sense to have a look at hydrogen for direct combustion um, if uh, if we could use existing skills, existing manufacturing processes, existing engines. Uh, to actually do some decarbonisation. So um, so I think we have to be pretty pragmatic. We have to keep pretty much every tool or potential tool on the table at the moment as part of the solution, and it makes sense to be working on them as a portfolio uh, to, uh, to, to drive the best, most efficient path to decarbonisation in each application that we're going to need. Yes, um, it keeps coming back to this idea of scale. And you know, as a business person, we should be thinking... It's a big scale required, so there's lots of opportunities here, but it needs new skills and the new thinking, new approach to business. What's going on with the numbers? You're always doing a back of a spreadsheet type calculations, tenant. How's hydrogen looking? Is it coming within realms of of the EV or the electrical market? So, um, in terms of the the size of potential future hydrogen demand. Uh, to for a, for a decarbonized economy, I think even the biggest announcements that we've seen from, including uh, the one we we discussed in the last episode uh, around the um, 
the scale of hydrogen, export-oriented hydrogen production projects in, in Queensland. Um, they're very impressive compared to what there is, which is very little, um, but they're tiny compared to the hundreds of millions of tonnes of annual global hydrogen demand that there could be by 2050, uh, depending on how successful hydrogen is against some of the uh, the competitors. So I agree that we we do need to keep scale in mind because it's it's just a useful reality check. Uh, bio everything, like there's so many things that we can do with biomass uh, in terms of plastics, uh, transport, fuel, stationary energy, negative emissions, but we definitely cannot sustainably produce enough biomass to do all of those things at scale and uh, we need to prioritise the hydrogen uh, some people get very excited about the potential to soak up spare electricity that would otherwise be curtailed from you know, a wealth of solar uh, all generating in the middle of the day well beyond demand and taking that electricity and using that to make hydrogen. But in fact, to make enough hydrogen to be relevant to deep decarbonisation you need way more electricity than could ever be supplied by just the spare stuff that uh, is is surplus to requirements from uh, what's generated primarily to meet the needs of the rest of the economy. You need vast, dedicated generation to support a, a world-scale hydrogen industry. So we are we are taking, I think, some good steps towards. Um, a, a future like that, um, but I, I would say we're not we're not that far along yet. And when the, the like the New South Wales government's hydrogen target is uh, to uh, produce the equivalent of nine uh, petajoules of um, of hydrogen in New South Wales by 2030, and that is enormous compared to the close enough to zero. Petitules that is made there today, um, but the East Coast gas market is more than two thousand petitules today. Now a lot of that is for export. Um, two two thirds of that is for export, or, or actually close to three quarters. Um, so you know we, we're we're on the journey. We've got a lot of miles in front of us. I think. Staggering, isn't it? The numbers are just huge, um, and the opportunities are uh, are right there for business. So, that, uh, let's finish with just a couple of supply chain issues. There is a, a talk um, of the European, uh, the Europeans are trying to convert as fast as they can to renewable energy, to solar in their home, that kind of stuff, because of the problems of uh, of gas availability, but also the price of gas. They just can't afford it, so they. Installing solar as fast as possible, except the problem is there is not installers. There is plenty of solar panels. They just can't get the, you know, the the, the capabilities to do that. For me, as a, as a supply chain person, I think wow, there is so many opportunities. When we if we can see ahead for those sort of issues coming, it would be it'd be great. Uh, but skills are always an issue. I know Paul, you've done some work in skills in the past. We're going to see this in Australia, aren't we? We're going to see the problems of just not enough resources, be it human or uh, or, or, min or min mineral resources. 
What do you think, guys? Oh, what do you think? Well, look, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, we're going to be as strong as the weakest link in the, in the value chain, right? So as we saw with, for example, computer chips um, uh, globally or, or even uh, where, the, uh, where the container ships were, were sitting or anything like that, right? You, or, or in Australia with, when we had truck drivers that were coming down with COVID and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't, uh, we had to change uh, the isolation requirements for essential workers just to be able to get people into trucks. Um, and in Australia, we've got a massive worker shortage um, uh, before we even get to the skilling question. Um, I've heard extraordinary figures for how many, uh, for example, additional engineers we're going to need um, over the next decade, um, you know, approaching 100,000, I think it is, uh, in Australia. And then you look at everything else. I mean, there is not an industry in Australia at the moment that isn't struggling with understaffing. Um, and uh, that does limit limit our growth. Um, and we're not even sure yet all the <coughs> uh, range of skills we're going to need um, in some of these sectors. And then, as you say, the critical minerals, the manufacturing capability, the factory investments, uh, the logistics, the installation, it's a, it's a massive challenge. And I think uh, it, it really means... We've had a fear doing the rounds in um, in developed countries in the the last decade that you know uh, the robots are coming to take our jobs uh, that that automation and AI uh, and uh, the the possibilities that are opening up are a, a threat to the, the way of life of an awful lot of people and sometimes those fears are about um, blue collar jobs. More recently, I think those fears have been about white-collar jobs. Um, but what we're seeing is we need help. Uh, we need all the tools at our disposal, skilling and uh, training systems that um, help people uh, to, to go to where the demand is, migration systems uh, that uh, give Australia access to the, the skills and the people that we need. But also, I think, a, a much more... Uh, positive attitude towards AI and automation. Yes, there are uh, a lot of issues to be managed. Maybe, maybe we can talk about some of those in the future. But just to get everything done that we need to do, uh, we are going to need every tool in the belt. A hundred years ago, in 1922 or so, um, Australia moved from being a horse-based uh, economy to a motor vehicle-based economy, and we built roads, and we built motels, and we built fuel stations, uh, and we we built trucks, and we built cars, and we, uh, we built places that repaired your tyres, and we did all of that. Uh, we're going to do this again. If I was a business person, I'd be saying, imagine if I was 100 years ago, what was I thinking then, and how do I prepare? It's the same story, except on a much bigger scale. On the as you guys keep saying, the scale is staggering. This has been a great chat. Um, we've covered uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of things. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. Look forward to the next episode. Thanks, guys. See you soon. Thanks, James.